Hello from beautiful Atlanta. I'm super excited because I just had the best conversation with Katie and Alana from Lumiere all about how to price your work as a surface pattern designer, illustrator, or hand letterer. This is the podcast version of our live stream video where we had this discussion and answered questions live over on my YouTube channel. If you'd like to join the design tribe, you'll get VIP access to the live calls. To join, head over to laurenlesley.com slash webinar dash series. And Leslie is spelled with an E-Y. Thanks for connecting with the Design Tribe. Let's start the conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the live stream. We have Katie and Alana from Lumiere today, and we are going to discuss pricing in the surface pattern design industry. I'm so excited because I feel like this is a very opaque topic, but more and more artists are coming out to discuss pricing so that new artists can have a better idea of what to charge for their work. And so, uh, Katie and Alana, if you can just tell us both like a little bit about your background and how you became an artist, just so people can get to know you a little bit better before we yeah. dive into the pricing questions. Um, I'll, <laughs> I'll take this one because Katie and I have really similar paths. So it's kind of funny. We can like fill in the blanks for each other. But um, fun fact is we have yet to meet in person. Uh, we've been working together for about two years. And we're, we, I mean, a little, a little bump in the road hit 2020. So our meeting was delayed, but we both worked, um, we went to school to do graphic design and got our BFAs and then uh, quickly found hand lettering and worked as art directors. And like on the side, we had product shops. So I think both of us, I mean, Katie can speak to growing up, but I always knew I wanted to be in the arts or creative in some way. But I definitely, when I was little, didn't know that what I'm doing now existed. I knew that I could work for myself, but I didn't know I could draw letters all day and that I could license my work. That was definitely not something I learned. So there's definitely been a learning curve, but we both did go to school for graphic design, for a BFA, and really immersed ourselves in the world of, of making, I guess. So we, we've we dabbled in a bunch of things. We've learned learned the ropes, but I think getting to where we are, we just knew being creative was, was in our blood. Yeah, totally. I was planning on actually becoming a musician. Both my parents are musicians. And then um, I guess it was my creative rebellion when I decided to, to do something slightly different. Um, I know my mom was real sad about it, but, <laughs> but I know it's so funny that your parents would actually like want you to go to school for music. Um, that's not the norm, but it was for me, but they might, they ended up being really supportive of it later. I definitely, uh, didn't know that graphic design existed as an option. And I was in like a photojournalism class in high school and we had an assignment to um, create like an album cover. And I ended up working like late every single day. And instead of just doing the cover, I did like a full insert and it was like 12 pages. And I remember asking my professor like, what is this that I'm doing? And he was like, oh, that's graphic design. So Wait, that's kind of how I, I found it. <laughs> We have not talked, I don't think we've talked about this, but that was my first project too. I don't know if it's like the quintessential so first funny. project, but I never wanted to be in, I'm not talented when it comes to playing music or singing or anything like that, but I wanted to direct music videos. That's awesome. Like, remember, I didn't know that about remember you. Behind still the scenes? just finding just so many things out about each other. Do you remember the, what was that show on MTV? Like behind making the video, making the video. Oh Yeah. I was like, that's going to be me. I'm a storyboard. I'm a storyboard. And I like, in my head was a famous dancer. I, I cannot oh, yeah. dance, but I like to pretend on TikTok. 
But how funny, the, the album cover is a good first project. It really mm-hmm. gets you in there, gets you down and dirty. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, okay, but then you guys kind of ended up becoming surface pattern designers, hand letters, and, and becoming this whole world, and, and you kind of partnered up, and you have your own business, and you work independently now. So um, I guess what was your first experience with, you know, kind of learning how to price your work and why do you think that pricing is so difficult for surface pattern designers, illustrators, and hand letterers? Well, I will just start by saying, um, Katie and I both had our own product line. We, when we like discovered hand lettering, we were like, oh, we could make our own greeting cards. That was a natural fit for the style of work we did. And then we basically were sent licensing contracts. We found these companies that wanted to work with us or reached out to these companies. And then in return, they sent us these licensing contracts. And we were like, WTF is our licensing. So that's how we both found it. And then we were like, okay, we're going to go to the University of Google and figure out how to price our work. And I think one of the hardest things is that people don't share these numbers transparently. So how, how would you know what to price? especially if they're not teaching you in school or you've never had to do it. It's not very like quote unquote mainstream. So how would, how would you know, how, how on earth would you know what to price? So I think that's one of it. And then obviously there's like imposter syndrome and all this fear of like, how do I price based on value or I really want the job. So I want to price so that I get the job. Um, There's just like not a lot out there that's transparent. And so that's been one of our goals from the beginning is to transparently share as much as we can or as much as we're allowed to, that can help someone else feel a little bit more confident about that. Yeah. My first experiences with pricing as like a young designer, um, completely starting fresh was I had like price shaming experiences, um, where like nobody was really sharing numbers or talking about it, but they would like shame you if you did say a number and it like wasn't right. And um, that's happened to me too. (laughs) Yeah. And so like the, I remember being at my first job and uh, another designer there was like, um, oh, I'm working on this logo project on the side. Like, what do you charge for logos? And I was like, oh, panic, panic. Um, And then I was like, yeah, well, I don't do under like $500 or something. And he was like, you better not. And, um, I was like petrified. I was like, Oh no, did I say something stupid? And anyway, it's just, that's definitely like happened so many times that culture of like, I'm not going to really talk about numbers or normalize it, but I am going to react to you in like a negative way if you don't say what I had in my head. So definitely don't, don't want to perpetuate that at all because it's confusing. And how are you supposed to know if you have no experience? Yeah. And I love that you have that perspective because I do think there's a lot of shaming there too, or that, you know, maybe sometimes more experienced artists feel like new artists are trying to devalue the industry on purpose. Um, And so I think that, you know, of course we all want to make more money, but I think that, you know, sometimes these money issues go really deep, especially for um, women. I think, you know, that's a huge part of it as well, um, especially in an industry like surface pattern design that is mostly women, you know? So I think that sometimes we just have that fear around charging what we're worth, or, you know, we just devalue ourselves kind of innately, um, or we just don't know. We just have no idea what to charge, like you said. Um, And so, yeah. So what is your opinion on, you know, maybe artists who say that new 
beginner artists are devaluing the industry? Like, do you think that that's valid? Do you think people should say that to new artists? Or I think that's crazy. I mean, there are levels, you know, if you were a beginner at a, you know, in corporate America, you're going to make less. I think we all need to charge based on so many values. I always say it's a sliding scale. So someone with less experience is going to charge differently than I charge. And someone maybe with less experience might charge more than I charge because maybe they think it has more value. You know, part of pricing is very personal and part of it is like um, perceived value. And so that looks different to everyone. There's no like, you must charge this much. But I think what we want to do is whatever level you're at, make sure that you know that your work has value and that you're not being undercut. So we're not saying you need to overcharge, but we want to make sure that you are charging and getting paid what you um, what you deserve. But at the same time, when we've done projects for way less than we should have. We've done projects that we can't believe they said yes at that price point. So I just, I, I'm sad to think that people are being told, like, if you're a beginner, you're devaluing our industry. Like, no, we need beginners. Come on in. Like, the water's warm. Come on in. But we need to educate them on how to price appropriately so that the whole industry, you know, you need to be upfront with if you are a beginner so that the whole industry doesn't get taken down by um, someone saying that if they have one year of the experience, they're not an expert. Yeah. I think the education tool is key in approaching it from that perspective. And like, you're welcome here. Um, I know you're new. So this is like kind of the general standards that we're trying to uphold. And this is how we typically approach things. Obviously though, like you're able to, you don't have to do things exactly the same as everybody else does. Um, but I definitely really don't respond to the whole like harshness and shaming and like that approach. I don't think that's a way to, um, foster community or get people like to make a positive change. I feel like that's just going to create like fear in them. <laughs> um, and that's not what I want to do at all. Uh, Cause I know what it feels like to be new and not know what you're doing. And I still don't know what I'm doing half the time. And um, yeah, I don't want to be the person that's saying, do it this way. Don't do it that way. I just want to say, Hey, you're invited into this like, club this is and then you know share as transparently as I can I remember when I was doing more like corporate work and a brand let's say a brand would come to me and I'd say you know I'm unavailable for this but I know someone who might be within your budget so who maybe has less experience or maybe can't deliver um as much as I'm planning to deliver in my package you don't know what someone is including in let's say it's a branding project which isn't service design but the price changes depending on what you're offering and so I think you have to take a step back too and say, are we even offering the same thing? Like something might take you a lot longer or might come more naturally than someone else or your process might be different. It's just such a sliding scale and there's not a one size fits all answer. But if we can just talk about it and be a little more open and educate people, then I think everyone's better off. And I think a great place to start too is um, surrounding yourself by people that you trust and that are in the same industry. Um, whether that's people who have been there longer or people that are at your same level. Um, because having like Alana, uh, to text whenever I have a client inquiry that I'm not sure about, or even if I have like a vague idea, I still run it past her. Um, and we both just bounce pricing off of each other. And that's been so helpful. Just having that other person to kind of validate your feelings or say, Hey, did you think about this? 
Um, that's super helpful. So I would say like start a Slack channel with some friends, like maybe friends you went to art school with, or, um, if you didn't go to school, like find a local AIGA group or, um, just, uh, start a meetup or something and get those people surrounding you and feel comfortable talking about pricing, practicing that. And, um, just doing that regularly is really important. I love that. Yeah. And I love your attitude around that. I feel like, um, or I saw a newsletter recently from, um, an artist that I follow and we're friends and I love her to death. And she, um, she was like, if you're a beginner, like, don't worry about undercharging. Like, cause you, you're a beginner, like you just, you might not know you're going to learn, but it's really the artists who have been doing this a long time and haven't been raising their rates. That's where like, you need to be raising your rates with more experience and, you know, don't be afraid to say, Hey, like we've been working together for a while now. Like let's, let's re let's renegotiate this. (laughs) Yeah. I think the, the, the kind of clients that we need to be holding higher pricing for is like those bigger agencies, the bigger clients, um, that we don't want them to think you can get a great designer for like, $20 an hour or something like that. Whereas maybe if it's like your local coffee shop and you're designing a sign for them, maybe that's more appropriate. Um, So thinking about the context of that too can kind of change my opinion on it. Yeah. A lot of people messaged me on Instagram when I was kind of having this conversation with people about pricing and um, a lot of people are in different countries and they were saying, there's no way I can charge that in my country with like local businesses. Um, But they had people, you know, responding to them saying, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what country you're in, you're devaluing the industry, blah, blah, blah. And so I I, th- I agree with you. I mean, I think that you kind of have to tailor it depending on if you're doing something, you know, some design work for Coca-Cola, it's going to be a lot different than your local coffee shop, especially if you're living, um, you know, in a country that might not have the same And you rates. also have to, you have to educate your clients on your value too. Like I, I hate hearing, I couldn't do that here because that's like a limiting belief. Like you can do that here, but you obviously have some barriers or some belief that you, that you can't like maybe three people said no, but they're, that person isn't the right person or they don't know enough about how much you have to offer and bring to the table. I'm not saying it's like a million dollar job. I'm just saying, you know, there's a conversation. I think that's one of the hardest things as someone who is self-employed is educating clients on what your value is and why it's worth uh, what, what you're charging. And I think that works really easily in surface pattern design because you're talking about a license where it's a varying degree of how much they're allowed to access and you can add or subtract depending on their budget. Like you want full exclusive buyout, that's going to be way more expensive than a one year, um, you know, limited uh, license that's only for this specific region. So it's definitely a sliding scale, but it makes me so sad when people think that I could never do that here because it's all about education and of course being appropriate for your market that you're in. If you're in a small business startup market where you're working with the local pizza shop, that looks really different than if you're working with Coca-Cola because the um, usage and the, how much exposure, not exposure. What's the word I'm thinking of? Like the reach is much different. So I think, you know, there's so many factors and it it's, it's a pricing is hard. Even when you've been doing it for ages, like Katie said, we call each other every time we get an inquiry and reference each other. And like, we go through, we have this guide that we go through, we go through the graphic artist guild book and we just like cross check several times before we feel confident in our pricing. So it's not just this natural, 
I have the number in the back of my head every time. It's definitely like a, a process. That's good. Yeah, that's really good to know that. And I'm sure, you know, people watching are, you know, learning that, oh, I can I can access these resources and kind of cross check my pricing and make sure that I am charging enough. Um, so let's discuss freelance jobs and kind of kind of excuse me, coming up with an hourly rate versus charging a project fee or like a day rate. So um, I'm just going to be totally transparent and use myself as an example um, because I'm still kind of new to the surface pattern design industry and working independently. I've been doing it for about uh, a little over two years now, um, but I still feel like not totally confident. So let's uh, talk about that. So uh, when I worked in-house as a textile designer, I was a senior designer. I earned um, $75,000 a year plus bonus. And, you know, in Atlanta, that's pretty good. Um, I had to work up to that. And of course, when you're independent. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Okay. So when you're independent, you are paying your own taxes, your own health insurance, your business expenses. Like there's so much that you are now responsible for that that 75K or whatever your previous in-house salary was, is not like, you're not trying to match it verbatim, right? Because now you have all these expenses. Um, so I adjusted for that by paying myself 100k per year um, and came up with the hourly rate of $50 an hour. Um, I discussed this, you know, in the effort to be transparent and you know, kind of gauge the industry. And I took a poll in my Instagram stories, and 76% of the people um, told me that I was charging too low, and uh, that you know, I just want to be transparent because so many designers kind of find themselves in this boat and like they might have a, a that logical process that I did. Um, and so I would say like, or I would ask you like, what would you do differently in terms of coming up with a good hourly rate? And um, on top of that, like a lot of designers DM me saying that I should be charging anywhere from, you know, just an additional $10, like $60 an hour to $120 an hour. And I know like, you know, depending on your experience, if you're a beginner, if you're senior level, um, I worked in house for seven years as a textile designer, four years in graphic design before that. Um, I was senior designer in my in-house role. So, you know, do you think I'm charging too little? Do you think, you know, what would you say? So I, I mean, yes, I think you're charging too little because you're, you're an expert. I mean, I know you said you're new to this, but you're not new to this industry. However, Katie and I don't love hourly pricing because what happens, the way you got to that number is you divided um, your time equivalent to money. So you're trading your every single hour, but you don't need to work 40 hours to make your income because a lot of the work you're going to be doing is actually behind the scenes building your business. And so your time is, is more than just a dollar figure. So that's the reason why I would charge more is because... Uh, and I wouldn't charge hourly is because your time, you shouldn't just be trading dollars for hours. You should be pricing based on your value. So it's like a kind of a loaded question because yes, I think it's too low for where you are in the industry and your experience level, but also because I, I want to see you get paid on value. And so um, I think the way you came to that number, yes, you need to increase that number you want to hit and then figure out what your expenses are. So you know what you'll actually put in your pocket, but then I would break it down more of like, okay, if I take on this many projects a month and I have income coming from this and then I have income, it doesn't matter how much time, like first start by figuring out where is the money coming from um, and then also like gauging the industry. Katie, do you want to add to that? I feel like Yeah, I, I really like 
kind of as I've gone on in my career, kind of thinking of monthly goals instead of um, like hourly goals that I need to hit uh, or even weekly because there is so much ebb and flow in um, owning your own art business. And uh, we have a lot of layered income streams. That's something that Alana and I both really believe in for um, a sustainable art business is having uh, revenue coming from multiple places and some passive income streams. So um, we kind of plot things out as like, okay, I need to make $6,000 this month um, to meet my yearly goal. So now that I know that I can say, oh, I'm going to do one, I'm kind of, I'm going to try and land like one branding project, which is going to be like $3,000. So that's, uh, one of those goals. And then I'm going to have, uh, a goal of trying to do like two, like land two art licensing gigs where I do cards. And that might be like 600 to a thousand dollars. And so we like to piece things kind of more together like that. And then it's a lot, um, less overwhelming too, to think about like, oh, I have to be working X amount of hours or else I'm not going to be making this money. That's not really how for us that it is really worked in our businesses. Yeah. I think because if let's say you have a 40 hour work week and you're billing all those 40 hours, then you have zero hours left to build your business. You have zero hours left to do the behind the scenes stuff that isn't just creating. And that's some of the really important stuff too, is that like, unless you want to be working 80 hours, which I know I don't. Um, so we really layer our income streams. Like, um, Katie and I, Katie has a product shop. I used to have a product shop. I have, um, a book that I get royalties for, you know, we each have other things that we're doing that we can increase if we're like, this month is looking a little low, or we can decrease if we're like, okay, I'm going to focus on freelance or I'm going to focus on licensing deals. So it is definitely a personal thing. Like, I'm not going to tell someone you're goal should be 100k or 200k or whatever but i am going to say like you need to figure out what you need to get by and then what your expenses are and make sure you're working backwards so that you're going to surpass that and actually have money left over because i think a lot of people uh, i've noticed are like oh my god i made 100k but it's like but how much did you actually spend of that because if you spent 50 and then you have to pay taxes like then you're not left with enough to you wanted to surpass your full-time job so you you definitely came to that number by you do you do have to make that number a lot higher and by breaking it into monthly goals it's a lot easier to kind of grab and be like oh okay I can do that that makes a lot more sense Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick break to let you know that Katie and Alana created an incredible pricing guide for artists called Price with Purpose. It has already helped me so much with knowing what's normal for certain design deals. Be sure to check out the link in the show notes. All right, let's dive back in. So what's your opinion then on diversifying your income as an artist? It sounds like that's something you're a fan of. It's something I do as well. Um, you know, I'm not working 40 hours a week via my freelance rate, but it is something I work into um, other things. So um, some people seem to think that, you know, having many income streams is the way to go while other gives other people give the advice to uh, niche down and try to focus on just one or two things. So what's your opinion on that? I think you can niche down but still diversify your income stream. So Katie and I like to talk about double dipping and we talk about how you could create content for social media, but then you could repurpose it for your Etsy shop and then you could repurpose it for art licensing or you could create freelance work and then create a whole month of social posts or you could then post the, you know, the things that you didn't use for the client 
onto something. You know, we always try and think of ways that we can use the same material for other purposes. And that works really well for licensing and for having a product line. Um, and then within the surface design world, you can license to multiple people so you can really repurpose things. So I think you can niche down while still um, spreading you know, everything we do is still related. Like we're not doing something out of left field. We're not like, well, I'm a glass blower by day and a graphic designer by night. And I have three different shops. We're not saying like spread yourself thin. We're saying work a lot smarter so that you're diversifying your income stream within your special, unique voice and style. Yeah. And I think once you, um, become more well-known in one area or once something really starts to, stand out as like most of your income is coming from over here, then you can say, okay, I have the data to know what to focus on. Um, I feel like pulled to this, this is bringing me joy. So then, you know, you can focus more on that. But most young designers who are starting their businesses out don't make enough um, from just one income stream or don't have enough freelance clients yet or don't have enough um, people buying their the stuff in their shop to be their full-time income. So that's why I definitely suggest for people starting out that they um, consider diversifying via the way that Alana was just saying with double dipping as much as possible. Okay. So it sounds like you're a fan of this, but I just wanted to ask if you think that independent artists should strike a balance between both active and passive income streams. Yeah, I mean, if it was possible to only have passive income streams, everyone would do it. But even if you <laughs> yeah. have digital downloads, let's say that's passive income, like you still have to maintain your shop and do marketing. So it's not, you know, sit, it's not sit back, put your feet up and do nothing. So yeah, right. we definitely have some passive income streams and some that we focus on. And it really depends on like what's working, you know, like every month looking and saying, is this actually serving us or is this like a lot of effort for no reward? And if so, how do we change that? So yes, definitely. Like, And it's it's hard to have a completely passive income stream too. Like people say passive, but it can be defined in uh, a couple of ways. But um, our two biggest ones are, um, well, art licensing, We uh, you can get deals with royalties. So you can finish a job in January and then in December, you're getting a check for royalties for the last quarter or something like that. And you just continue to get checks for things that you've already done. So that is legit passive income after you do the active part up front. And then another thing that's been really helpful for us is um, our online education or like any kind of tools that we create one time and then we sell multiple times. Um, but that's not passive completely because we're out there doing marketing and talking to people all the time and creating new things and, uh, you know, there's so when we say passive, we have some air quotes sometimes. <laughs> Not just then. <laughs> yeah, like just like Katie said, like our our courses are passive income in the sense that we've we've already created the course and it's selling, but we put a lot of work in behind the scenes. It's the type of work that like nobody nobody sees or nobody knows about or whatever. Uh, to, to make sure that it keeps selling, you know, and it's just so funny when people think passive income is like literally put your feet up and like sit back and do nothing. Like if that was a thing, like every single person would be doing it. Like it, everyone would do it. That would be amazing. That's not what it looks like. It requires a lot more work or a huge team so you can have, you know, 
you know, the life that you're striving for on the couch. But yeah, definitely. We definitely right. like a I mixture think- of both. Yeah, passive income in terms of not trading dollars for hours necessarily. Um, so, okay. So we also discussed um, pricing buyouts um, when I was having this conversation on Instagram and um, a lot of people were responding and there was definitely a range of answers in terms of like what artists thought you know was normal for what to charge for a buyout. And for those of you who might not know, a buyout is when you sell the copyright to your work, you're, you're one and done. It's like a clean transaction, but you're selling the copyright to whoever's buying it from you. Um, and you should charge more for that. Unlike licensing, you get to keep the copyright and then, you know, you're licensing that work for, you know, two years or whatever the contract is. So artists responded, you know, by saying anything from like $750 for a buyout to $2,000 if you're selling obviously the copyright. Um, and then some people said maybe $500 if it was like a two color, like really simple geo print. Um, does that sound right to you? Do you agree with that? Um, see, yes, I think those numbers sound aligned, but it's one of those things where it's like, I need more details. Like oftentimes it'll be like, what should I charge for this? And I'm like, I need to know so much more information. Like what's the size of the company? What's the, how many are they going to produce? How, um, what's like, what's their reach? How much time, you know, I think about how much time it takes you, even though I don't charge hourly. Like I think, was it a really complex pattern that is like, you know, started with, with gouache and it's like 10 layers and, you know, it, it really depends, but I would say that those numbers are in line with the industry, depending, we've also seen a lot higher priced, uh, depending mm-hmm. on what it's selling for, you know, again, like what the industry is, but those are I've definitely, I've definitely heard thrown out before. A lot of people talk about buyouts and like a percentage of the cost of, uh, a license. So if like, you know, the license is, uh, th- at the price that you would charge for a license at like three years for the U S then maybe the buyout is, um, twice that or three times that even. Um, so I, I think it might be a little bit easier to kind of think about it in terms of that. Um, at, at least it is for me. Yeah. And I think also like there, every self-employed person is going to have that thing where they ask themselves, do I need the money? Do I want this job? You know? And like, there are going to be times where you take something that is lower than you've expected because you're like, I, I don't really care about this piece. They can have it. I don't want to repurpose it. Or you're going to say, I want to hold on to this for a better deal. I'll be more excited about. And so I think every artist has that where sometimes they've charged less than they maybe would have because they were like, yeah, I, I, I want the $500. And that's fine. Like that's your decision to make. But yeah, I like what Katie said about doubling what you would charge for a license because it's at least double the value because they can do whatever they want with it and they can profit over and over from it. You can also think too, um, like how much potential value could I get out of this if I didn't sell it as a buyout? Like if I still own the license and could license it to multiple clients, like, is this a piece that I could sell to multiple people and should I hold on to that? And you know, that might be taking on a little more risk because you don't have that what is it? The bird in the hand is the bird. What's the phrase? The bird. It was like the bird in the hand is better than two. 
bush or something. Is it I, a bird? I don't know. I've never anyway, the thing that you have in front of you sometimes is better than the potential thing that you think might happen, but you don't have it yet. I think that's what you're trying to say grass can be greener, kind of? Mm, not exactly. Yeah, okay, I got um. it. All right, well, the other thing I was going to say is um, my old agent used to say, like, if there's something you don't want to sell outright, just, like, note it. If you want to, like, if you are, if it's your favorite piece of work, unless they're paying what it truly is worth, then market and say, I'm not going to license this. Like, you know, it's easy to be tempted by a quick sale, but if you want to see it, like the longevity of it, you're going to have a better off situation if you're licensing it probably. And having that number um, that you share with the client for a buyout can be a really good negotiation tool as well. Cause you're like, um, you know, Hey, this is what this true value is. If you own this whole thing, um, but here are some other like package options or some other licensing term options that are, and then those numbers become more appealing to them. And then they start changing kind of the way that they're thinking about the pricing and what seems expensive and what doesn't. Right. Oftentimes with surface design, like why would they need it? Why would they need to have it exclusively? Like what are the odds that the other company that licenses it are going to be sitting next to them on the shelf? It's, it's pretty rare. So if you can express that to them and say, like, if if you want lifetime complete buyout, it's going to be this huge number. But if you just want for two years and I won't license it to any of your competitors, it's going to be a lot more approachable. And then you you could have a great deal. Right. I think it's funny when um, sometimes companies are resistant to that because there really is very little risk for them to just license it. Um, and then they could continue the license if it's like a bestseller or something like that. You can always extend the license for another two years or whatever it is. But um, yeah, I think a lot of times there's just that scarcity mindset among businesses and especially small businesses where they want to own the copyright and they're scared of their you know competition. But yeah, I mean, if it's a totally different category, there's very little risk. <laughs> it's totally different if it's something that's created custom for their brand, like if it has their logo on it or something like that, of course, they're going to want the full buyout. But that's, that's totally different than if you are, if they're pulling something from your portfolio, and they're like, we want to put this on our product, that's totally different. But if they're a, if you're making something custom for them, that really can only be used by them, they're going to want that full right. So what would you say to designers who were just scared to charge a high rate? Like they just, they're, they're having that mindset or that kind of inner, there's that inner work that they have to do that they're just scared. Um, maybe they came from a family that, you know, kind of struggled financially and they just don't feel, they just don't know like that they can charge that higher rate. I think, um, talk to people within your community, get some support, have some people behind you telling you how great you are. I know I sent out a really big proposal last year and I like called three people and I was like, should I do it? And they really helped me like feel like I'm going to do it. But also like, what do you have to lose? Like there's no guarantee you would get it at a lower rate. Sometimes the lower rate is seen as inexpensive and cheap and they might really want the value. But I think a lot of it is educating people on your value and to do that, you have to know your value and feel confident in it. And I think that's a lot of like inner work and that can be really hard. So I think surrounding yourself with people who believe in you and can like, like lift you up, I think is, is a really good place to start. Yeah. And practicing taking little steps, like 
uh, if you don't want to, you know, charge like way, way higher where some people are telling you if you're like freaking out, maybe you like split the difference or, um, you know, and then the more that you get yeses or um, responses that don't kill you, you're going to start to reinforce in your mind that, hey, this this isn't like the end of the world if they say, you know, whatever they say. And uh, the best thing, the best case scenario is that I get more money, which is awesome. And then the more that you start to recondition your brain by like actually taking those difficult steps, the the better you're going to get at it. Nice. So while we're on the subject of income, um, how do you feel about the option to work with an agent? I know, uh, Alana, you mentioned that, you know, you, you used to work with an agent, um, and I think what's standard is that most agents take about 50%. Um, and I know that even though agents do a lot of work, um, artists sometimes struggle with parting with half of their income, you know, that's coming from these deals. Um, and some agents even, you know, require that freelance jobs that you get. If it's part, if they're, if it's their client, then that you have to pay them a percentage of those jobs as well. So how does a designer know when maybe a, an agent is, um, maybe asking for too much and versus like what the industry standard is. If you do want to work with an agent, like, do you have any opinions on kind of what's fair? Um, and just for new artists who might not know. Yeah. I think one of the first things is to remember that an agent does not define your success. There are plenty of, of artists out there who are working independently, who are incredibly successful. And there are plenty that are represented that are successful and vice versa. We have, we know plenty of people who are working with agents that aren't booking jobs. So it doesn't like, it's not this like magic potion where you're like, oh, all of a sudden I'm successful. Um, I will say there is a, like a time and a place and it's really such a personal choice. So I am represented. I have just recently signed with a new agent. And the reason that it was important for me is because I have two kids under four and I want, I really value this time with them when they're little. And if I am doing all the outreach and trying to manage all these jobs and I don't have time left for the other things that are important to me. I actually like doing outreach. I like reaching out to new clients. I like discovering them. I don't mind sending the emails. I don't mind taking the time to connect with them. But right now it's not something that I want to spend the time doing because I want to do other things. And so for me, it's a really good fit. Um, Also, they're helping me manage my existing licenses. Uh, I know that I financially am giving them 50% and that I'm fine with that because it's saving me a huge amount of my time that I, that I'm bringing in financially other places. So for me right now, it's a great fit, but there are people who are so good at outreach and that's what makes them shine. And I, I hope that they keep doing outreach because that's how, why people are going to book you, not just because of your portfolio, but because they just like you. And so I think it's just a personal choice. And I think finding the right agent is huge. If you get a red flag or you are like not loving it, you first of all, read those contracts. Those contracts are super long, but yeah, (laughs) make sure it's a really good fit. And that, that's just like, it's not a one size fits all. And um, yeah, Katie, you want to talk about your experience? Yeah. Well, I'd say um, the most important thing when you're just starting, if you're like considering going with an agent that you have a, um, a trial term in your contract um, so that you can both kind of 
test each other out and see how the relationship works. Um, especially if you've never had an agent before and what's standard for that is usually I think six months to a year to just like try out. Um, so I would definitely recommend looking for that or if you know, that's not something they approach you with, tell them that's something that you want. Um, and then you can like reevaluate after and decide if you want to keep going or if you want to part ways. Um, I had an agent at one point and, um, just the amount of work that they wanted me to submit on a monthly basis, um, was too much for me. Uh, I can absolutely do that amount of output in certain months, but I just felt like having, it felt almost like having a boss again. (laughs) And, and I was like, Oh wait, um, didn't I go off on my own to like be able to kind of create my own schedule and like not have to, you know, have these kind of obligations of do this amount of work by this amount of time. Like, so that, that kind of, um, I thought in my head that it would work out, but it ended up being like a big stressor for me. And so that's one of the reasons that I'm currently just doing it on my own. And, um, I started having like greeting card companies reaching out to me fairly regularly too, which was good. So I'm kind of riding that, um, greeting card train at the moment, which is great. Awesome. Yeah. I think, uh, working with an agent really is a personal decision. And some of the pros are that you don't have to do that outreach and it does, um, save you some time. Um, on the other hand, um, you kind of lose sight and you lose a little bit of control of who are they reaching out to, you know, like, do you know, is, I don't know did they show them this or did they show this client this? And and you can try to have those conversations, but also an agent is representing so many different artists. Um, You know, if things are not hitting, then it's, it can be um, a struggle as well. So um, my next question is artists often feel the pressure of getting big on social media, kind of as a way to measure success, especially if they're new to the industry. So do you feel like, uh, the number of followers plays into how much artists are willing to charge. Like they might see an artist that's super successful and has like a ton of followers on Instagram. And they're like, well, if I can get, you know, that kind of Instagram fame or social media, you know, presence, then I can charge what I'm worth. You know, do you think that that plays into it? Um, Boo. <laughs> <laughs> I think that people <laughs> right. definitely think that plays into it. Um, and maybe in certain areas or with certain clients, it might, which is a red flag right there, if that is a thing for them. Um, but I think in surface pattern design, uh, that's really not a thing at all. Um, most people that are like really killing it in surface pattern design have like really normal amounts of followers, like, like 500, a thousand followers. Like I, that's a really, really common thing to see with surface pattern design, because I think the industry, doesn't it's like an older kind of like industry vibe with like more traditional and i think that they don't value the like instagram or social fame as much like the the buyers and the agents that are in there because they're not a lot of these companies don't have a social presence of their own so why would it matter i think there are some collaborations i've seen with artists who do have a huge following and that's amazing and maybe their following can help sell the item. But I think it really comes down to they just love their work and they discovered them because they had an online presence. Um, But 
I mean, this is a just like a crappy feeling to have in general, but I'll say uh, my the amount of work I get, I don't get any work from Instagram. Like I, my platform has, it's totally separate. I don't share really share surface design on there anyway. Um, what's great about Instagram is the community, how many, like meeting you and finding your work. But I just hate like, that we think this is like measured success. There are plenty of people who have huge followings that don't actually book jobs. People just like their work because their peers are following them. But I do have a friend who has a small Etsy, a small Etsy shop. She has a huge Etsy shop and she gets <laughs> licensing gigs left and right and is working on amazing products. I don't think she, I think she has an Instagram. I think she's posted to it probably three years ago was the last time. I don't think she scrolls on it. She's maybe has 500 followers and she's killing it. I mean, she's amazing. Like it makes no difference to her business, which is like such a good example. I mean, the bigger, the biggest point is getting in front of the people that you need to get in front of and getting your art in front of them. So uh, the social following can be one way to achieve that, but there are many other ways and putting your art on Pinterest or something like that, that can help. Or um, just having a really strong portfolio and being really diligent about doing outreach that can work. Um, You know, going to like conferences and being really good at networking. Like there are a lot of ways to achieve the result of getting in front of the person you need to get in front of. So I wouldn't stick on the social media following as the go-to way to do that especially because you don't know that it's the right following like I said it, it could be yeah. your peers following you following you and your peers are not the ones who are going to book you jobs so if you have 500 people following you and a hundred of them are art directors like that's probably way more than most other people with large followings have you know I, I understand the the idea that more people is more opportunities, but it's definitely not a make or break and it's definitely not like a determining factor. So you can totally be successful. Uh, and there are so many ways to do that. That's not the only way. Yeah, that's really good to hear because I think people feel a lot of pressure to, you know, gain that big following, um, you know, in order to even charge the, what they should be charging. Um And I know when I first started, I felt that way too, that like I had to post every day, you know, and now I've learned that that's not necessarily, um, (laughs) important. So I would um, say your, your finance, like what you charge has nothing to do with your social presence for sure. Right. Right. So what's your opinion on selling your artwork on stock sites like pattern bank or creative market or, um, you know, some, some of these print on demand sites like society six or Redbubble. We always say, um, with those kind of things, you get out what you put in. Um, a lot of people see those sites and they're like, Oh great. This is a great passive income opportunity. And then they throw up, they throw up some, um, (laughs) designs. (laughs) There's more to that sentence, but they could also throw up. Um, so they like put some designs on there and then they, leave it and don't come back to it. And then they're like, Oh, why isn't this selling? Why isn't this making me money? Well, because you're not promoting it. Um, cause you're not regularly posting new things. Uh, so there's a lot that you need to actually put into sites like that, uh, to get an outcome that's even somewhat helpful. (laughs) There's, um, 
Jen Wagner has a class on it and she talks, she does typefaces and she talks about how she's made her shop successful, but that's, that's her job. I mean, she's really, you know, immersed herself in that field and succeeding on that platform and, and all the, those things that come along with it. But it's definitely not something you can just, here's a new font and then you're yeah. done. Those websites also really foster um, a climate of low priced goods and people that kind of shop on there tend to expect things to be really cheap. So that's probably not where I would um, recommend to people to put their time and energy because you, if you're going to have to sell things at a really low cost, you're going to have to sell in a really large volume. And uh, Alana and I have figured out time and time again that it's uh, way more worth our time to focus on a, a larger priced item that maybe takes a little more time investment than a bunch of small things because it's so much easier to to do one large thing than like, it's like a, a thousand small things. It's like a shiny penny. Like you're like, oh, I want it, but it's not really going to get me anywhere unless it's like a lucky penny or something. Um, but I think one thing we love about it, I don't know if Katie said this, but you can like, if you do, a, if you're doing surface pattern design and you want to test out how your things would look on um, a product, buy the product. And then that's like a ton of content. Take a photo shoot, put it in your portfolio, um, show what your work looks like to scale on these products. And who cares if you're not selling it or you sell one or two, like it still makes you look awesome. Like it looks so good to few potential buyers or just to show your work in that amazing, like look how it translates. Like, that's so cool. So I, I mean, I one time made a pair of leggings and put them on society six and bought them. And I was like, I wore them all the time. They were so cool. Like it just made me feel good to see my work. And I like gifted them to someone and it's just, a, it's cool. It's, it's exciting. And it's a good place to use content and see your work in real life, but it definitely takes a ton of effort. Yeah. I think maybe that's what, um, the advice was when I was kind of asking my niching down question. And I think that if it's a site like this, you kind of do have to niche down and just pick one to try to be successful on. Because if you try to spread yourself too thin across a bunch of sites like this, like it's just not going to get anywhere. Um, I do want to ask if let's say that, you know, you've pitched your work to, um, to buyers, to clients, um, and let's say it's been in your portfolio for five years, you haven't really done anything with it. Would you then maybe recycle it and try to put it on a site like that just to see if it would potentially sell at that point? Or is there I like mean, a that's point probably that- a good sign that it's not going to do well if it didn't do well with buyers and clients. Um, I would kind of take that as some a data point. <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, yeah, I... I probably wouldn't uh, spend the time to even like set it up if I was getting that kind of feedback on it, unless it's something that I was really passionate about. And I was like, people just aren't seeing it and it's going to do way better in this platform. And um, but yeah, I I don't know if uh, if that's where I would invest. Yeah. And maybe first of all, Katie's a really strategic thinker. So I like that response. I think if you love the piece, one thing is you could revisit it. Maybe you could change the colors and see if it does better that way. But if you really love it and you're like, I love looking at this piece, then put it in your Etsy shop or put it on Spoonflower or Society6 or whatever and buy yourself a piece and have it if you love it. And then, you know, that's another way to gauge it is like, 
if someone else sees it when it's in your house or if it makes you feel good, that's a good way to just like, if you don't want to say goodbye to it, you're like, I want to hold on to it a little longer. I think revisiting it and, you know, photograph it for your portfolio if you want and see if anything happens. But you you can also ask for feedback um, from buyers or from people on Instagram and say like, uh, hey, like, what is it about this piece that like is or isn't resonating with you? And then, um, like Alana said, maybe it's just a wrong color palette that isn't uh, standing out, or maybe it's the scale of things, or maybe your type is illegible. It's probably something that you've been staring at it for a really long time, and you can't see it, but other people can. So I always uh, would encourage you to to ask, you don't have to try and guess uh, all the time. Also, I think your old pieces, like you should be making so much art that your old pieces aren't sacred. Like you should know that you could create something even better or you could create the same thing again because every day your like muscles are getting stronger. And so I remember when I first started, I was like, I don't want to share this because I'm like, it's so good. What if I can't, what if it's the best thing I've ever done? It's like, that's baloney. Like you're just going to keep getting better and keep getting stronger. So if you have something from five years ago and you're like, ah, I never sold. That's okay. Like not everything is going to sell. Sure. So do you just delete it then? Like, what do you do with it? I mean, you (laughs) you can leave it there. You can take it down. You can revisit it and try changing it. You know, I have pieces where, I just decided to take them off my website because I just don't like them anymore. So maybe someone else would, but they haven't sold yet. And I don't feel good about them anymore. My style has evolved. I mean, every day, every year, our style evolves. So I was like, nah, I'm over this. Let's just yeah. I leave think it curation, in the digital, digital hard drive. Curation is a really important uh, skill to have as an artist. And um, I know my professor, one of my professors in school said, um, your portfolio is only as strong as the worst piece in it. And that really stuck with me because I have a, like a collaborative project that I run on the side. And so I'm looking through portfolios all the time. And I totally, if I see five amazing pieces and one that's like totally from left field, I'm like, well, I don't want to, you know, hire them for this project because what if they create that? Like it it creates a a climate of uncertainty, like what am I going to receive? And and it kind of downgrades the rest of the work. Um, So I definitely encourage you to even err on the side of over curating instead of under. And as a young designer, usually they err on the, I'm going to throw everything I've ever done up on this portfolio page. And uh, it really separates uh, somebody who's maybe less experienced than someone who's a lot more mature uh, when you're uh, in a client's eyes, I think. Not everything you make needs to be for sale or for show. Like some things just need to stay in your sketchbook for you and not for anyone else. And that, that's definitely like a learned craft of like what to put in, what to keep off your website. And um, we try and do that with our, we do quarterly portfolio reviews with our students and I think it's a great, like, it's a great lesson for us to like, oh, right, I did, I did something like this a while back or, oh, I don't, I don't like what's on my website anymore or something like that. And it, that's hard. It's like, but we've grown up in this era of like sharing, oversharing. Right. (laughs) So holding back, I think, takes some skill. Right. 
Um, okay, so do you think that systemic sexism plays a role in how much female artists earn? Um, if yes, how can we all work together to kind of close that gap? Mm. Yeah, that is a good question. I think one of the things that you were um, you mentioned at the very beginning was that women are more uh, harsh on themselves and uh, the imposter syndrome is stronger with women in general and where I think we're just more like self-aware and overly so sometimes. Um, so I think definitely I've seen myself hold back when a male counterpart wouldn't. Um, so that's some unlearning that I've had to do is like, you know, even when I do feel unqualified or uncertain that um, I might be needing to turn something off in my brain and go forward anyway. Uh, so I would say I've had sexism <laughs> against myself in that way almost. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know. What's your perspective on it, Alana? Yeah, I think especially we're in a community, a surface pattern design is, is really dominated by women and powerful women and strong women. And I think when we have these conversations, it helps. But I, I mean, believing in yourself is, is challenging. And so, you know, standing up for yourself and, and uh, asking for what you want can be really vulnerable. But I think that's how we start to make change. Um, you know, I've worked with art directors where I just start having more open conversations like it feels scary, but I'm just having more open conversations. And I think those little things make a difference. I hope they make a difference. But yeah, we we have this pricing guide um, where we interviewed like 25 different artists on like projects that they'd done and what they charged and um, asked them all these questions about it. And there were only like two men that we asked, I think, but um, their prices were high. But they, the one of the guys was the highest price by an insane amount. He was at like eighty thousand dollars or something for this one project, and he wasn't. I mean, he's a talented designer, but it's not like all those other people in our guide are that much less talented. That's not the case right. at all. He just had... It's not the correct proportion. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So he had the, had the confidence and the chutzpah uh, to ask for that outrageous amount of money and he got it. So I, I think, think he even said that. I think he said like there was, yeah. I, there was no way and I think they ended up like adding to the project and it was a, it was a big project, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's the, the leaning on your friends and asking and surrounding yourself with both male and female designers who can have these conversations with you. Mm -hmm. We we actually worked with him and he was incredibly humble and lovely to work with. Mm -hmm. And yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. No, I was going to just spitballing on what you said. Um, I think creating a in your community, a diverse group of people. Uh, um, so men and women, but also like different races and different backgrounds and different economic statuses and ways to think about the world. I think that's really important. And we've had it pointed out to us, um, you know, that our circle was a bunch of like white women. And we were like, oh, you're, you're really right. 
uh, we need to start including some other voices in this conversation and we need to be listening to other voices. And um, so I think that's hugely important in, to mention, like, don't just have a group of people that's like easily accessible and that you just like pull off the street near you, like make sure to reach out and make sure everybody's represented as much as right, possible. Like, like- actually go out and look for people who are diverse. Like if you just scroll through your feed and you realize that everyone is the same, go out and look for someone who is different than you are and find out their experience and loop them in. And that even goes for skill level. Like have a beginner in your conversation, have an expert in your conversation and see how they, they struggle with the same problems, but they're going to come to it from very different perspectives So surrounding ourselves with people who just like are in our industry, I mean, and the same goes for like, we started having this conversation, like there is room for everyone and everyone brings something different to the table. So there's no need to like worry. I saw this from um, someone on Instagram today. Stop making a competition where there isn't one. Right. There there is (laughs) no competition here. Like we all win. We all get to win. So uh, right. Let's have the conversations that allow people to all win. And I think that's really important. Mm, I love that. And I could not agree more. Do you guys have time for maybe a couple of questions from the live audience? Sure. Okay. Um, let me just scroll back up to the top here and see. Okay. Um, someone from Sparkbox Studio Print Shop and Artist Residency <laughs> asks, um, when you say share as much as you're allowed to, do you mean that in some cases you aren't actually allowed to share the details of the pricing? Yeah. So if there's like an outright sale or an exclusive buyout or, you know, you're giving the copyright, they might tell you, please don't share online. Um, we try and always reserve the right to share within our portfolio But uh, I know some agents don't want you to share things online because they want to give the um, clients first dibs. And it's just, you know, you might sign an NDA with someone that you can't share. So like just being mindful of that. More times than not, you can share pretty much whatever you want to share. But it has happened a few times where we've shared something and then realized we're not supposed to share it. Or (laughs) we've like signed something that we're not supposed to share Specific was details. It, is the question about um, sharing pricing or sharing uh, the art itself? Sharing pricing. Oh. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a delicate, potentially a delicate subject if you're going to, like, post something to a bunch of people. Oh. You, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily um, say, hey, this client named blah, blah, blah uh, paid me this amount. I actually asked for this amount. Um, that might make some people uncomfortable that you're working with. Um, (laughs) but we've definitely kept the client anonymous and talked about it. We, uh, talk about the real client's names to our friends. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I would be careful just with like directly naming clients and putting numbers next to it. Um, just just for like regular business practices. You don't want to like make anybody uncomfortable or feel like too exposed. Right. Okay. So Autumn Renz asks, how much wiggle room is there when established companies reach out to license your work? Should I bother negotiating or bringing numbers to the table or do they come to me with what they pay? I vote for always negotiating. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would always um, ask for more if you think you deserve more. A great way to start the conversation um, when you get an inquiry is say, like, do you have a budget in mind? Because it gets them to give you a potential range to wrap your head around. And then you can be the first one who gets to respond knowing what they're thinking. And so you get a little bit of extra um, strategy time as well. Yeah, I love <laughs> um, But sometimes you'll say, you'll do this little dance where you're like, what's your budget? And they're like, um, we don't really have a budget. What's you, what's your regular cost? And you're like, well, <laughs> do you, do you, and then it, yeah. it's just like this little dance that you do sometimes, but super awkward, but yeah, getting a ballpark number from them first is like my ideal situation. But if not, um, you know, I always want to have a number in mind too. something that, um, I definitely wouldn't go under. Like I always have a a bottom line. Um, so that helps guide my negotiations too. But definitely, and like we said before with negoci- negotiations, um, you don't just have to like say negotiate on the price. You can no- negotiate on the terms to get to the price. Uh, so that's something you should definitely keep in mind is like, okay, so they can't do the $2,000. Can we get to the 1500 that they want if I make this license like really limited and, and um, only give it to them for like three months or something like that. Like, what can I do? So it's advantageous for me, but also sits in their budget. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Ushla asks for a new textile designer who doesn't have any previous experience. Do you recommend getting a job before getting into your own business? I think she means working in house. I mean, I think that's totally a personal, like, if you want the experience of working in-house, great. Katie and I did not work in-house in textiles. We worked uh, as our directors, like, basically graphic designers and worked our way up. So if you want the experience, great. And if you're like, no, I am made to work for myself and I will figure it out and, like, bootstrap myself and, and figure it out and do the hard work, then that's great, too. There are so many online resources now that you can definitely make it work if you're willing to put in the the effort to figure things out. But there's definitely nothing wrong. A, there's nothing wrong with working for someone else. And B, there's nothing wrong with, um, like, learning the ropes, you know. So if you think you'll enjoy the job, I think that's great. Yeah, Lauren, it seems like you would be a good person to chime in on that question, too, since you have that experience. <laughs> um, I tend to give the advice to work in-house first only because – I see people say like, well, should I get a job or should I go back to school? And I would rather learn by being paid than like taking out a bunch of student loans and like, you know, and I I don't know, I just, I had a fine art degree. So my experience in school was a little bit different, but I didn't feel like it really prepared me for the real world. Um, And I don't know, I think it kind of depends on what kind of support system you have as well. Like I didn't really have the option to like move back home and like, live with my parents while I like built up my business, you know, like I had like bills to pay, um, you know, moving back home wasn't really an option for me. So, you know, getting an in-house job was the best thing I could do while I kind of learned the industry from the other side of it, you know, from we worked with licensors. So I learned about it from, you know, that side of it. I think that's really great advice. And my time um, as an art director at an agency was really invaluable to me because, yeah, I wasn't prepared for the real world from art school. I was prepared to make art, um, but I wasn't prepared for all of the culture and all of the experiences that come with that. So 
I definitely would recommend um, at least a couple years with somebody else or in a, a partnership or yeah, it totally depends on your support system, but there's so much you can pick up when you're working for somebody else. And um, that can be just really beneficial. Plus I was able to um, kind of, once I discovered that I really loved lettering, for example, I kind of steered my projects toward lettering while I was working for somebody else. And I was like, uh, you know, getting paid to kind of explore and learn things that would benefit my future business. I thought of my full-time job as funding for yeah. my side hustle. Like yes. my money just went all back into it so I could actually give it the space to grow. So I think that's, Lauren, that was great advice. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's kind of what I did too. Well, is there anything else that you guys would like to close with or give advice to people? Um, For those of you who are watching, um, their business, Lumiere, has um, a pricing guide that it's called Price with Purpose, and it's amazing. It's linked down in the description below. So definitely check that out. But if there's anything else you guys want to close with, um, feel free. I would like to close with um, just your your welcome here. And uh, we are happy to have more people in this industry to support each other. And we really want to create this culture of sharing and not shaming. (laughs) And um, the more that you can perpetuate that and the more that you can speak with transparency and empathy, um, the better. So we definitely are encouraging that. And then we encourage you to also um, try to do the things that are, that sound scary because uh, that's how you grow. So price a little bit higher than you're comfortable with. Um, ask somebody to work with them even when you feel like you're not ready. Do those things and um, that's really going to be where you find those growth moments in your career and in your life. So well said. Perfect. It was Yay. perfect. <laughs> Good note to end on. Thank Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, Lauren. Bye, guys. Bye. Hey, y'all. I hope you learned so much from this conversation with Katie and Alana from Lumiere today. Be sure to follow them over on Instagram at lumiere.co. And don't forget to check out the show notes to get the link to their amazing pricing guide called Price with Purpose. As a disclaimer, I do get a small percentage of sales from those of you who choose to buy the pricing guide, which helps so much to keep a small business like mine in business. Make sure to leave a rating, a review, and if you're willing to give this episode a little extra love, take a screenshot with your phone and share the episode over on your Instagram stories. I love you so much, and I hope this episode gave you way more confidence to charge what you're worth. See you next time. Bye, guys.